led our thoughts to, to eternity. I, I somehow doubt that that was, was an accident on James' part. We're grateful for him. Would you please uh, open with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21? Last week we uh, made it as far as verse 6. We're going to finish this morning our study of Revelation 21 verses 1 to 8. I'm so thankful this morning as we're, we're gathered again in these unusual circumstances with, with, uh, with exceptions and temporary changes made. Uh, it makes me very grateful to God for the fruit of the Spirit that He's putting on display in our body, for the love and the patience. Um, and even though things are a bit different right now temporarily, the fact that He allows us to hear His call to worship together the fact that he allows us to sing together and pray together and sit together under the preached word, these are, these are great mercies of God that we are, we are enjoying this morning. Uh, Revelation 21, let's just begin with, a, with rereading the passage. If you're able, would you please stand with me? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And I'll reread verses 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we got to about the first half of verse 6 last week. Let me lay out for you how we're going to proceed in our time this morning in order to finish out uh, our study of this passage. We're going to do three things this morning. Uh, first thing we're going to do is to quickly remember the pictures that we have seen so far uh, through verses 1 to 6. Secondly, and we'll do this second thing in those verses and finishing out through verse 8, we're going to take notice of something that we didn't mention last week for the sake of time. And that is how each of the images that we hear about here that God is showing to John, even in the way that God is speaking to John, the words that, of, of the Lord that John is writing down, we're going to see that each of these, uh, these images involves ideas being brought over from the Old Testament into our passage. Uh, the Lord, in showing John exactly what he is showing him, is proving himself, in other words, to be the fulfiller of promises, to be a God who keeps his promises. And seeing how this comes over from the Old Testament will help us in a really important way this morning. It will help us to see the very deliberate Christological emphasis in this passage. So we're going to do that, secondly. And then thirdly, we're going to apply what we see by drawing some conclusions about what God's word here tells us concerning worldly solutions to the worldly problems that we face. Let's begin with, with a bit of a recap. We saw last week a number of promises that God is giving to his people to encourage us. He is telling us things about ourselves as his children, things that are not true 
now that will be true when he is finished with us. You may remember these. The first one that we saw, just to remind ourselves quickly, we saw in verse 2 the promise that there's coming a day by the work of God that we as the bride of Christ will be ready. You remember that there, verse 2? John saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. He said, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Secondly, we heard in verse 3 of a, a presence with God that is held out to us. We today as Christians have God's presence with us truly, but in part in a way that will be consummated on that day. John is shown here a day when God is going to say from the throne with a definitive air of completion, the dwelling place of God is with man. The third promise that we saw was a promise of peace, promised in verse 4. We reflected on the fact that we, we do enjoy peace in this life as Christians. We're told by Paul in the book of Romans that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God in Christ. There's a real peace that we enjoy as believers. We don't enjoy the peace that we read about in verse 4 here. He speaks of a day in which every cause of crying and pain are thought of and spoken of in the past tense. Try to imagine that. God will say of those things in that day, the first things have passed away. And we took note of the fact that that is describing a day in your future as a child of God. A day in your future. You will see that day when every cause of misery and mourning and weeping, it's a thing of the past. We'll see this morning more clearly that's because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we saw those promises, each of those, I hope clearly last week from our text. What we did not take time to notice, though, is the fact that these visions that John is being shown here are specific repetitions of images that we've already been given, roughly, most of them roughly 800 years before John writes this, in the Old Testament. Every one of them points us back, and not just to an Old Testament picture of God's salvation, but they point us back to pictures that highlight the coming effect of the Messiah that God is promising. So you have, in what we saw in verse 2, you have Jerusalem, and there's three pieces to that picture in verse 2. You have Jerusalem being adorned like a bride, uh, and that, that adornment we saw last week from Revelation 19 are the righteous deeds of the saints that God has prepared for his people to walk in. We see these things in this Revelation picture and then we look back at Isaiah 62, and we read of the promise that the righteousness of Jerusalem, he says there, the righteousness of Jerusalem will go forth as brightness, that the nations will see, and that she will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. It says there that as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over her. This is not the first time that this image has been given to us by God. You have the promise that we've seen here in verse 4, that God will wipe away every tear in that coming day. But then in Isaiah 25, 8, listen to what we read there. God says, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And these, by the way, I wish we had more time to go and look more carefully in these Sections. Each of these references are contexts that are emphasizing the coming Redeemer that God is going to send. We see it again in reference to what he says here in verse 3. This is my favorite of these. Uh, notice again verse 3. He told us there. He said, He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Let me show this to you. Keep your finger here and flip back for just a moment to Ezekiel 37, verse 27. Ezekiel 37, 27. This is what we read there. Let me just read the verse 
in its entirety, and we'll focus in on a particular word here. God says this. He says, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. His focus on Israel as the people of God uh, and that his coming to dwell with his people in this day that he's holding out to them uh, will be a demonstration of his righteousness. And he says, in that day I will be their God and they will be my people. Same thing that we heard in our passage in Revelation 21. But there's something really interesting about the, the way that, that God speaks this through, through, through Ezekiel and the way that he says it to John in our text. Let me ask you a question. My sons are going to roll their eyes here because this is, a, this is a, an English question. right? The word people, is that word singular or plural? It's a hard question in English in a way that it's not a hard question in other languages like the biblical languages. They had a way to make real clear if they're speaking of a noun as a singular or a plural. But we've got things like people, this collective noun. Uh, and there's a lot that we could say, say about that word. But the answer is it depends. It depends on how we're using the word. You could talk about those people, and there's a definite plural idea there. You could also talk about a people, right? That's a singular idea. It's a group, but we're talking about one group there. So is it singular or plural? Well, it sort of depends in that way. Well, I bring all of that up to make this point to you. In Ezekiel 37, 27, the prophet writes, they shall be my people, singular, singular Hebrew noun. They shall be my people. Then God speaks to John about a coming day, and here's what he says to him in our text in Revelation 21.3. They shall be my people. La'oi, plural. They shall be my peoples. There's a change here. And this is far from an error on God's part. Uh, it's far from an error on John's part. In fact, that number change we find in the New Testament is actually an essential part of what the what the New Testament writers call the mystery of Christ. This highlights something about what Jesus accomplished when he has come uh, as our Messiah. Paul writes something that would have been amazing in their day. It should be amazing to us as well. Ephesians 3, 4. He's just gotten done describing to the Ephesian church what God has done in Christ with Jew and Gentile. He's broken down the wall, dividing them. He says there that he's made one new man in place of the two. And then if, in Ephesians 3, 4, this, listen to how he describes this. He says, when you read this, you will perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then he says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the household of God, members of the same body, he says. This is the mystery of Christ, what God has done in securing salvation. God says to us here in verse 3 of Revelation 21, they will be his peoples. Now, let's be very clear when he says that. That's not at all to suggest that there are multiple peoples of God there is one unified people of God. It's the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what God is doing here in changing that word form is he is highlighting for us the nature of the work that Christ accomplished. Can you see that? By changing it to people plural, he is highlighting for us that now in Christ God has taken uh, his children from every tongue and tribe and nation and gathered them into one people. It's amazing what God is doing here in the way that he takes these Old Testament promises and speaks them to the Apostle John. God's presence dwells with that multinational bride, which as we're going to see, that says a lot to us about the uh, sorts of, of divisions and categories that the Christian thinks in in our day. We'll talk more about that later. 
But what God is doing for us here is he's emphasizing that aspect of Christ's work, his unique work as the Messiah. Now we pick up in our passage here, if you're still in the Old Testament, you can come back now to Revelation 21. Uh, We pick up in verse 6 with the fourth promise that is held out to us. And the promise that we get is, is, is a, it's a picture that he's giving us of satisfaction. Look what he says at the end of verse 6. He says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's a beautiful picture. By now we would expect a, this to be a repetition of things promised to us in the Old Testament. Now that we've seen what the Lord is doing as he's giving these pictures to John, and we're not disappointed here. His statement alludes quite explicitly back to the book of Isaiah again. This time Isaiah 49, verse 10, and Isaiah 55, 1. And again, when we go to those places, we find ourselves in places where the work of the Messiah is being emphasized. And particularly in those two sections, the work of the Messiah in bringing the nations to himself. In Isaiah 49.10, he's just described what he called the day of salvation. And this is what he says there. He says, They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. This is God speaking of the work of the Messiah, and he says he will lead them by these springs of water. John is also using language in our text that goes back to Isaiah 55, 1, just a few chapters after that. And in the course of Isaiah's book, in Isaiah 55, now God is not speaking. God the Father is not speaking. Now the Messiah himself is speaking there. And in verse 1, he actually calls out. Listen to what he says. This is our Messiah speaking from Isaiah 55. He says this, Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Do you hear the two ideas there that we have in Revelation 21.6? We have the ideas of thirst. He says, to the thirsty I will give. And we have this idea of a grace gift being given. I will give without price, these passages promise us. This is a promise that he's holding out to us of what he's going to, what we're going to find in that day. But it's also something else. And this is where verse 6 is a little bit of a transition in our text. Because now what we're starting to see are not just promises. We're also starting to see descriptions of the children of God. What is a child of God? Well, who is he speaking to here in verse 6? He says, to the one who thirsts, to the thirsty. And your mind may rightly be going back to what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Do you remember what he said? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He's describing kingdom citizens. So a child of God is one who is thirsty, thirsting for righteousness. To thirst, think of what that has to involve. I have to have come to a place where I perceive some sort of need. I am thirsty now. And so this child of God is not just thirsty, though. He's thirsty, and he responds to that thirst by coming to the Alpha and the Omega to quench that thirst. He approaches the God of the Scriptures, and he approaches that God with empty hands, not with hands full of some meritorious offering trying to buy water. He has been beckoned by this one to come without money, without price, and to buy. This is what a child of God is. And the Lord says to us in Revelation 21.6 here, to the one who thirsts, come, I will give freely of the water of life. Do you see the descriptions here of a child of God? Not just the promises, but the descriptions. Leon Morris draws attention to this description of God's people as the thirsty. 
And he says something that was really beneficial to me. He says, he says this, The gift is made to him who is thirsty. And we may fairly conclude, this is true, isn't it? We may fairly conclude that unless anyone feels a need, he will not seek satisfaction. When he does, the need is met from the spring of the water of life. And we can say with the sort of certainty that our passage gives to us, that we saw last week, we can say with that certainty that this person will not go away disappointed because no one has ever come to the Alpha and the Omega like this and gone away disappointed. No one has ever gone away from this God, approaching Him in this way, disappointed. Jesus says some amazing things to that effect in John chapter 6. Listen to some of the things that He declared to those that he was speaking to there. He says in John 6, Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You hear this extreme language? Never, never. He said there, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. To his people it is given to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they find Christ to be their righteousness. Verse 7 gives us another picture of God's people. We read in verse 7 these words. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Literally, the one who conquers will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. The one who conquers. Talk about a loaded term. And we could have spent the entire morning this morning just looking at the idea of conquering in the book of Revelation. The word appears 15 times in this book. And we won't spend the entire time this morning, but it does require that we spend some minutes thinking about this. Because I think we have here, with the, with the idea of conquering that's being given to us, I think we have something of a princess bride moment. You remember the famous, maybe the most famous line from that movie? I won't do the accent. I do not think that that word means what you think it means. Right? When we hear the idea here of conquering, we might not have the same picture in mind as the one that is given to us in this book. There are two places in particular that describe the nature of this conquering in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2.26 speaks of the one who conquers as the one who keeps my deeds until the end. This is what Jesus says. To the one who conquers, the one who keeps my deeds until the end. And you should notice that last part of that statement. It's that until the end part here. The other place is Revelation 12, 11. That verse describes what conquering of, by the saints looks like on the ground... And it describes it in this way. It says there, they did not love their life even when faced with death. Those are the conquerors in Revelation 12. Those who did not love their life even when faced with death. You see, what we find is that the conquering that a Christian experiences is the conquering that our Lord Jesus accomplished. We are conquering as we persevere in faith in Christ until the end. Do you know what the effect is? I'm sure you do. You know the effect of wrong expectations on, on the outcome of a situation. You can take an individual and lead them through a difficult circumstance where if, if they go into it with the correct expectations of what is coming, they may well come out of the other side just fine. But take that same individual through the same set of circumstances and give him or her, wrong expectations on the front end. What does that do to the experience? It creates disillusionment and discouragement. Great burdens that we might have avoided if we'd only had the right expectations going in to the situation. Well, there are many Christians today walking around with a certain set of expectations about what being united to the body of Christ is going to entail, what that's going to lead to in this life. And often those expectations 
are centered around, they may not say it this way, but a certain mindset of comfort, uh, a, a sense of belonging. I'm going to enjoy a sense of, of belonging as a result of this unity, maybe even temporal advantage in this life. Well, guess what will happen when those expectations turn out to be wrong? If we are headed for any sort of an exodus from the American church, it won't be hard to understand why that winds up happening. But it's nice. We don't have to concern ourselves so much with everyone's expectations in that sort of a national or global way. We can ask ourselves those questions. What is your expectation about what the Lord will demand of your life? What if it's true that he demands everything about you? That he demands every part of you? What if it's true that he can and does lead us directly into dark and difficult trials in this life? A statement like the one we have here in verse 6 and verse 7, these descriptions, this is what they do for us. They cause us to evaluate our expectations. How is he describing us here? Is this the way I think of myself as a child of God sojourning through this life? Will our expectations and hopes be fixed on faith-informed obedience? And an obedience that views our life through the lens of Scripture. There's a really incredible passage in Romans 8. You may remember when Paul quotes the Old Testament, again, as John is doing here. And, but there he quotes a passage that speaks about God's people as sheep being led to the slaughter. Do you remember that? We are as sheep led to the slaughter. We are being killed all the day long. And then he says this. He says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He uses the same word. In fact, coins a, his own word. In all these things we are super conquerors. That's how he puts it there. And I just imagine from what he says next that he, he anticipates the look of confusion that might come on our faces at that turn of events. We're sheep being led to the slaughter, and boy, are we more than conquerors. So he goes on to explain why a people being put to death would be called more than conquerors. And what he explains is this. We are conquerors because for those who are faithful through any trial, for those whose rest is in the works of another, and that rest manages to stand to the day they die, for those people, there is not a single thing that exists. It's not a single circumstance that is able to separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing in creation that will successfully separate them from the love of God. You see, this is not the temporally victorious image that may first come to our minds when we hear the word conqueror. But I hope you can see it is the path that God has chosen for us. In fact, it's the path that was first walked by our Lord himself, wasn't it? There's a moment in Revelation 5 where John is weeping. Weeping at what he is seeing. And he's told to stop. An angel comes and tells him, stop weeping. And the angel says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Stop crying. Look, the lion has conquered so that he can open the scrolls. And John looks. And do you remember what he sees? He sees a lamb standing as if slain. A bloody, slaughtered lamb. It's that lamb that goes and takes the book. It's that lamb that watches the 24 elders fall down before him and who receives the song, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There's that emphasis again. The angel points to the slain lamb and says, Behold, 
the lion has conquered. Revelation 21.7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Our only path to conquering as Christians is through identification with the one who has conquered. It says we identify with him in his victory, and we hold fast to him as our righteousness. And we share in the victory, and we then follow in the path that he has forged for us. This has to be what Paul was talking about in Romans 8.16, when he said, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. What is the path? to sharing the glory that our Lord has earned. We follow him in the path of his suffering. And it's a share in his glory that we enjoy at the end. Now, one way to see how, and I hope that this is, this is clear in what we're doing here and seeing the focus on the work of Christ here, but for us to understand that faith is at the heart of what John is holding out to us in these verses. One way to see that root of true faith in this inheritance he's talking about is to have a picture of the alternative. In other words, what, what is it that this inheritance that we're being held, that's being held out to us here is rescuing us from? And we get that picture in verse 8. Let me reread verse 8. We, I read it from the ESV to begin. Let me read it to you the way that the New American Standard Bible translates it. Because the difference that you will see here reflects the way that John actually wrote this. He stretched out a series of words with the word and between each one. Boom, 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 boom. And it, I, I have to believe this, that that was intentional because when you read it like that out loud, it creates even an audible impression. At least it seems like it does to me. I think it creates two impressions. One, that this is a group of people that belong together. This is, this is a group that we think of together. And two, that this is a large group of people. I think we get both of those impressions as we read it this way. This is the wide and easy path that leads to destruction. And many have found it. Verse 8 reads like this. But as for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Do you hear the, the, the sense that that creates? That's how he wrote it. And coming right on the heels of verse 17 is very helpful to us. It helps us to see the two in contrast to each other. We see these people as they stand in relation to verse 17. Those who conquer will inherit these promises, God says. But these people, their part will be in the lake of fire, the second death. In bringing this picture up of the lake of fire, he's uh, giving more detail to what he already said at the end of chapter 20. Uh, he already told us there of the casting of Satan himself, the beast, the false prophet, even death into the lake of fire. And we see now here further detail about those that are cast in. But seeing it in connection with verse 17 helps us to understand as well what God is calling us to. What is he calling sinners to? Even in a place like this that seems to so emphasize activity. I mean, we've just gotten here a list of, of descriptions, a list of actions that we may or may not do. What is it that he is calling us to here? He is not calling us, first and foremost, to simply avoiding a set of behaviors. What he's calling us to in these verses is a true faith in a particular Savior. I inherit these things I will have this heritage if I endure to the end in looking with hope to the finished work of Christ. That's how I will inherit these things. See, I'm united to Christ by that faith. I mean, it comes down to understanding the order of salvation, doesn't it? I am united to Christ by faith, 
And as a result of, of the work that he has done in me so that I might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I am now anchored in him. God sees me as being in his son. And I am on solid, stable ground. And on that solid, stable ground, what does God do to his people? Well, he pours life into them through the life-giving vine of Christ. The outcome of that looks different for each one of us. There are measures that God gives to his children, measures of grace the Bible speaks of. But one thing is for sure, as we sing in, in, in some of our songs, the person standing on that ground goes to sleep every night assured of one promise. He will hold me fast. When I think my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. This is the hope, the prayer. This is the sense of confidence that a child of God endures and enjoys. I will endure because my Lord has endured, and he loses nobody that has been given to him. He clothes me with his righteousness. And even now, he works to conform me into his image. And so in that sense, yes, we can look at verse 8 and say, yes, I will, as a child of God, look less and less like the world. I will be putting sin to death. And so by his grace, the descriptions in verse 8 will not describe the pattern of my life as a child of God. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians um, such were some of you, right? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We can look at this list in verse 8 and see clear examples. This is maybe a positive way to think about verse 8. What we have here are clear examples of what God's spirit is ridding us from as he is setting us free. It is very obviously a testimony to the certain coming eternal judgment of God against those who will not trust in Christ. But it even informs us in terms of how God is working in us. The first two words in this list in particular, most commentators set them apart, and I think rightly so. Uh, the first word is the word cowardice. He is setting us free from cowardice. One commentator said this. He said, John is not speaking here of natural timidity. It's very helpful in understanding what he's talking about. John is not speaking of natural timidity, but of that cowardice which in the last resort chooses self and safety before Christ and fears the threats of the beast rather than trusts the love of Christ. God did not give his people such a spirit of cowardice. I was talking to someone about essentially this thing that we're discussing here just this week. Think of our current situation that we are in. Think of the threats of societal pressure, governmental pressure, uh, growing more and more ominous by the day, as it does seem to be, doesn't it? How do I, as a Christian, how do I self-assess I'm living in these days? How do I evaluate where I stand uh, in, in, as regards what, what uh, John warns us here of cowardice, for example. How do I know if I'm characterized by cowardice? Uh, if I see the coming clouds, like by the way Jesus told us we need to be able to do, right? We need to be able to see the signs of the times. If I see the signs of the times coming and I feel fear, is that what pegs me as a verse 8 coward here? The answer to that is definitively no. No. We are different, aren't we? Our personalities are different. Some faithful believers are of such a personality that they see potential coming threats. Maybe this is you. We probably all know people like this. They see a threat coming, and their immediate reaction is to stand up and get in its face and say, bring it on. Make my day. Some faithful Christians are of that, uh, of that temperament. Other faithful believers tremble at the thought 
of the implications of these things on themselves and on their loved ones. But the mark of their courage will be that if the day comes that the rubber meets the road, that bold provocateur and that trembling saint will both choose to identify with Christ. They will choose identity with him over self-preservation. Never mind what their knees are doing. Never mind what their voice is doing. They will identify with their Savior. And in so doing, they will prove something, won't they? They will prove in that day that they love the king more than they fear the beast. It's not that true believers have no fear. It's that in the final proving ground, when given the choice between self and Christ, they choose him. He is setting us free from a spirit of cowardice. After the word cowardly, we see the word faithless. We know it's true. It's sad, but it's true. A false believer may try to live among God's people for a time. It happens. I pray that that is not happening this morning in this room, but we know that it happens. What happens to that individual as the difficulties of the world grow? As the call of God begins to require actual cost? Or even as that person tries to live up to the commands of God and falls short. What does that person do in those circumstances? They will eventually out themselves. They will eventually throw their hands up and conclude, you know, maybe this whole thing was just a sham anyway. They will choose unbelief over perseverance. But look what we see here. This is the sort of faithlessness that God promises to purge from his people. He does not promise to purge any and every form or moment of doubt, does he? Just like he does not promise to purge any or every moment of fear. That's just, doubt is another area of ongoing sin in our lives. And we know that as Christians that we expect no perfection in this life. The believer struggles at points, sometimes mightily, with questions of doubt. But the believer cries out in those moments, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The believer walks through sometimes those dark moments of misery, those dark times of misery, knowing that every moment of the way, I've got nowhere else to go. Where else will I go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. As I said, many commentators set those first two descriptions apart from the rest, and you can see why John may have been intentionally beginning this list, targeting uh, and, and uh, working to spur on weakened believers. Finish the race, he says here, in essence. You can see in these first two a failure to do uh, as opposed to the choosing to do in the other six. There does seem to be a bit of a difference there. In the first two, there's something of a special emphasis on those who would claim to, believe, to belong to the community of God. The rest of the list particularly emphasizes and uses words associated with pagan unbelievers um, and uses terms that denote rank rebellion against God. Most of these have reference to idol worship, for example. Greg Beale argues that four of these terms, uh, detestable, sexually immoral, sorcerer, and idolater, all point toward aspects of idol worship of that time. I really wrestled with how to use our time this morning. There's so many different ways we could come at this section, and much less this individual verse. Uh, what I want to close with in our time is to draw your attention to a different word in verse 8, rather than to those specific designations. Do you see after the list, do you see that it uses the word portion? It says, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire. We all, every one of us, are moving towards a day in which we will receive something from the Lord. The one who conquers, the one who holds fast to Christ until the end, he will receive an inheritance. 
And we learn elsewhere in Scripture, he will be sharing the very inheritance that Christ himself has earned. He will be given freely to drink from the spring of life. That's the one who conquers. The one who surrenders. The one who chooses the love of the world over the love of Christ. Here's what this tells us. He too will receive a portion from the Lord. He will be excluded from the very renewal that we read about here in verses 1 to 8. The renewed heaven and earth in which all tears of mourning and crying are passed away, he will be excluded from that renewal. He will be cast into the outer darkness. He will not have an eternity of joyful tears only, perhaps, no tears of mourning. He will have an eternity of mournful tears. What are the conclusions that we ought to draw from a text like this? This is the third and final thing for us to see this morning. There's, we've seen, I hope, the Christological focus of verses 1 to 6. We've seen the nature of the judgments of verses 7 and 8. And I hope you can see that these things draw our attention far beyond the struggles of our own time. They ask us as Christians to consider a day in the future that God has appointed. When the day of Revelation 21 comes, things will suddenly be seen from a much wider perspective, won't they? We could put it this way. There are some issues and conflicts that mankind fixates on today that will very quickly drop out of the minds of men when we stand before that throne of Revelation 20 and 21. A lot of things will fall out of our minds. What will remain in our minds on that day? There's a lot of fixation today on the things that separate and on the pursuit of unity. On that day, we'll find out that there is only one division among mankind that is worth anything, and in fact, it has eternal significance. Only one division that we see made in this passage in reference to people. It's the division between those whose trust is in Christ and those who will not stand by him. That is a permanent division, and it's one with eternal consequences. But when we consider the temporal divisions among mankind and the, divi- the real divisions today that have produced strife and contention now, but have, con- have produced that strife throughout human history, what do we find here in Revelation 21? Well, we find that there is one place and one place only in which the divisions that exist among us are going to be done away with. And that's in the presence of God. The way we see this remarkable transition from the hopeless problems of the world to the solutions that are found in God, the way we see that in this life is we see it in the church. It is Christ's bride, the new Jerusalem, that finds within it peace across tongue and tribe and nation. I hope you've seen this morning the extent of the emphasis on that resolution that has come in Christ. It is only as we focus on the true division in the world, those who have Christ and those who do not, that the way is made for other divisions to find resolution. The glorious outcome that's promised to us here in Revelation 21, 1 to 8, is exactly what it claims to be. It is the only hope for such an outcome. We said it last week, until the presence of God dwells with man, the sea remains. The tears will forever flow. And this is why your charge, brothers and sisters, the church's charge is to embrace our identity as citizens of the kingdom of Christ and to embrace our charge to be what Paul says that it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said of us there, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is our charge. That does not mean that we ignore the pain and suffering of those around us. It doesn't mean that at all. 
What it means is that we live in our spheres with a clear-mindedness as Christians. To recognize that every pain of this world is the result of man's separation from God, first and foremost. To see every man and woman as the image-bearer that they are. And to see them as those who one day will receive something from the Lord. Either the inheritance of Christ or the only portion that remains. I have some beef here and there with C.S. Lewis. He had some issues, but he said some things really well. And he said this really well. He said, you have never met a mere mortal. Couldn't get that one out. Let's try again. You have never met a mere mortal. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is so powerful to take us in our weakness, in our short-sightedness, in our inevitable reality of looking at things through a mirror dimly. Lord, to that person, you bring your word. And that's what we've experienced this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the sense of clarity that you bring to us. And I thank you as we have seen this passage. Lord, I pray that what has been clear on the other side of this vision is the beauty and perfection, the sufficiency, the absolute necessity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, it's easy for us to envision difficult days and to fear, to even worry about our own responses. Lord, we pray to you, you who have made us such great promises. We ask you, Lord, in whatever you bring to us, that you would make us able to stand. That you would give us the grace that is needed on the day that it is needed. And before then, Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you. To remember that our righteousness before you has nothing to do with our performance. If righteousness could be attained by works of the law, the cross would have been unnecessary. We thank you for the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, for our benediction. This morning we'll be dismissed with the words of Revelation 22, verses 16 and 17. Just like in Isaiah, you you had God speaking and then you had Messiah speak. We've had God speaking about him in our passage. And now in Revelation 22, the Messiah himself is speaking. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And we are dismissed to fellowship outside with six feet of love 